I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. Very glad to have you here, as always. It's been a crazy week. I mean, I guess it's been a crazy couple months. Um, But I personally had a crazy week uh, that got me thinking about a lot of things. um, Especially about community and tribe. Um, I think the whole thought process started because I uh, did a little FaceTime chat with my brother and my mom for Mother's Day. And um, my mom is in a really interesting position right now. She was living in California and Los Angeles for the better part of a decade and moved out there to sort of pursue all these different things that never ne- never panned out really. Um, she also moved there for the weather though. <laughs> Uh, coming from New York and New Jersey. Um, But after many years passed, she sort of realized that uh, Los Angeles just wasn't working for her her anymore. And she felt super isolated. And a couple of her friends who lived out there had moved and uh, over the course of several years just realized that that wasn't the life she wanted to live anymore. And she was getting lonely. And um, even though she really enjoyed the weather, it wasn't uh, worth it anymore. And she made the decision to move back to New York City, which is where she grew up and where I grew up for the most part. Um, And she had her house on the market for a while, but basically it sold maybe, it was like late January, maybe February. Um, But she moved to New York within weeks of this pandemic really kicking up. And uh, lo and behold, now she's in New York where she basically a huge reason for her moving there was because she had all these friends and contacts and loves going to theater. And um, she just figured she would have such a roaring social life. And of course, she moved to New York City, which is the hotspot of this virus. And she feels just as, if not more, isolated than she felt in Los Angeles and is really frustrated because although she's happy to have sold her house and at least she's in the place she wants to be, she can't really experience it in the way that she wants to. And so we had this video chat, the the three of us, with my brother, and um, she was sort of asking us a bit about what our thoughts were on co-housing that even if it doesn't happen now, sometime in the future, that she's really starting to consider the extent to which loneliness and isolation affects her health and her happiness. Um, 
she's going to be 70 soon. And um, my brother, who I'm actually going to have on the podcast either in the next couple of weeks or sometime in July, we'll see. Um, but my brother works for an institute called the Happiness Institute out of Denmark. And uh, they really look at the effects of loneliness and isolation on not just mental health, but physical health as well. And uh, especially right now, considering like, what are we supposed to do? Like, is the risk of the virus more than the risk of isolation? If it is, what can we do within the context of isolation to alleviate some of that stress, alleviate some of that loneliness? Um, so we had a really productive conversation where my mom was really thinking about what it might be like to live with people and have a tribe of sorts in a way that she hadn't really ever had before. And my brother sort of chiming in about this research that he's doing. And of course, you know, uh, my interests align with these ideas around community as well. Um, and what we sort of got to at the end of the conversation was how can we find ways right now in this context to create the sense of community and tribe? And for her, it's especially tricky because she's in such a stressful place. You know, I'm here in rural Colorado. My brother's in Amsterdam, which is a city, but still comparatively way more chill in general, but especially now. Um, so like, I don't feel like, I mean, first of all, I'm in a beautiful house. I'm in a beautiful place. And when I go outside, I'm in fresh air and I don't see anyone and it's total, the total wilderness but she goes outside and it's like a total war zone. And basically everyone she knows in New York City is either just as or way more paranoid than she is. So she can't hang out with any of those people. Um, and so she feels frustrated. I mean, a lot of them won't even go on walks with her. Like she has to lie about the fact that like a handyman is coming to her apartment to do some sort of essential work because she's afraid that if she tells anyone that, that they're going to ostracize her and say, how dare you risk your life? And um, so anyway, we just started to think creatively of like, well, what if you could find, what if you knew two or three or even four people and you guys just decided like you're, you're a group, right? Like it's worth risking the getting sick for, in order to spend time with those people. Obviously this is happening in other ways with families that live together with couples. Um, you know, she's a single woman, so she doesn't have that and she doesn't live with her family. So how can she sort of create a family of sorts? And would those people be willing to support her and vice versa? And they all just decide, like, we trust each other to be safe. And honestly, the risk is worth it to spend time with people and laugh and take walks or go for a drive. Um, so Anyway, I was thinking about that, like, who are those people for me and who are those people for, for everyone else and how might this experience be shaping our narrative around family and community and tribe and, like, who is worth dying for, sort of, right? Um, and then I took a fascinating trip to Santa Fe. Uh, it was sort of the first time I left this little town in Colorado uh, since we got here, um, at least for any sort of a long drive. And we went down to Santa Fe and um, we visited this ranch called the Synergia Ranch. And of course, I was a little concerned. We were going to, you know, 
hang out with people, I guess in a sort of socially distant way, but still hang out with people that were, you know, 50 plus, um, 60, 70, the, the main guy, this guy, John Allen was 91. And I was like, wow, they're, you know, they're, they trust us to have been isolated and responsible thus far and to invite us into their home to have dinner. Um, and of course we're all going to be safe and we go to the bathroom. We're not going to touch too many things and wash our hands and we're all cooking together. And anyway, this man, um, John Allen is a fascinating, fascinating character. Uh, if you Google John Allen and biosphere and just w read his Wikipedia page, just that alone is mind blowing. Um, but he and a group of friends starting in the sixties in San Francisco, got together and basically became their own little chosen family and did these amazingly inspiring and creative and humbling projects, including building a ship and sailing it around the world to every single continent to support their ventures. They set up a hotel in Kathmandu and an art gallery in, um, in London, and they had a theater troupe that they toured around and they bought this ranch in Santa Fe and they, it was totally arid and the soil was shit and they regenerated all of it and created this little sustainable community in Santa Fe in New Mexico. Um, and then as I'm sure probably a bunch of you have heard about, I sort of heard about it on the periphery. It was in the early nineties, but this group was responsible for coming up with the idea to create this thing called Biosphere 2, which was this sort of like self-contained earth. And the, they set it up in Arizona. It was a $200 million project within this little geodesic dome thing. Little, it was like five acres, but they put in a desert and a coral reef and every single type of environment that exists on earth. And they were going to have eight people live in it for two years. Um, in order to do a couple of things, it, what it seems like is that part of it was to explore, would it be possible for humans to live on another planet in like a self-contained Earth-like environment, but also, you know, raising awareness for our actual planet and the effect that humans have on it. So they named it Biosphere 2 so that people would ask, like, what's Biosphere 1? Which was the Earth. So put eight people in a sort of mini Earth and watch how those people interact with the living environment and what happens to oxygen and CO2 levels and food and waste. And, um, the project went a little awry, I think mostly because of media attention, nobody really understood what was going on and there was a lot of money involved. So there was a lot of like sensationalizing and confusion around like how to portray this project. And it's, you know, both it's, um, successes but also failures to the mainstream public but it was a it's a I mean talk about humbling <laughs> like any idea that I've had has uh been so small in comparison to all of these things these people did um anyway if you want to learn more about this there is a movie that you can rent on YouTube for two bucks it's called Spaceship Earth and it's about this group basically and all the projects they've done including Biosphere 2 Anyway, I didn't really know that much about uh, this project or these people before going to visit them. And so I sort of went to visit them and experience them all now at this age and um, in this, you know, time with the ranch having existed since the 
I'm guessing maybe they bought it in the 60s or 70s. Um, but to see the land there and so lush and all the gardening and all the building and domes and dance studios and all this um, mess hall, just amazing things. And then we came home and then we watched the movie. So we sort of got like all the backstory on this whole group, which it was just the most like jam packed 48 hours that I've had in so long. I'm still processing so much of it. But one of the main takeaways, having just come out of this conversation that I'd had with my mom about community was, you know, everyone there, there's probably 20 or so people that live on this ranch, maybe six or seven of them have known each other since, since the 60s, not biological family, although there are like uh, adult children of a couple of these people. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously they're all isolated within themselves, so they trust their group. They're like, that's their tribe. Like, these are the people that I'm hunkering down with, that I'm riding this out with. We trust each other. But they were also really generous to us, and they don't have a ton of visitors, but they were um, willing and not just willing, but desiring uh, to welcome us into their space um, and invite us back. <laughs> and uh, it was just such, especially I think because my interaction with groups of people, it has been so low for the past couple months that to spend time with those people in that way. And then also to see how they live with one another. And, you know, these are people that have known each other for their entire lives. It's like, you can't reinvent yourself and pretend that someone's not going to know what you did or who you were in the past. And, you know, it's it's sort of what drew me to this town in Colorado. Someone said something like, you can't be an asshole because you're going to see that person in the cafe the next morning. You have to just deal with your shit in a mature, responsible way or you won't survive. It's so tribal, you know. In a hunter-gatherer tribe, if you were just like decided to be a dick one day and go out hunting and eat all the food and didn't share it with anyone else, like they kick you out of the group and you die. You can't do it. You have to be a team player. You have to participate. And that can be, you know, in the form of tasks that you do, but also you have to participate in the sense of being an honest, genuine person who commits themselves to growing and learning. Um, I did a podcast with someone, uh, Joe Lightfoot. I forget what episode it was, um, but the title is Community and Neo-Tribalism, I believe. And... Um, it was he has set up uh different community groups basically in in multiple different contexts and although i feel like i knew this subconsciously what he impressed upon me in the conversation the most was that sort of mirroring that occurs within community so like this isn't just external like these people are all growing and learning together as a family and when all the participants are really willing to be honest and self-aware and admit when they were wrong and be vulnerable and break down in front of others or help make someone feel better, you know, it's, it's impossible not to grow yourself. Um, it was just really interesting to me that that was the thing he talked about the most that sort of like consumes the most of his, you know, thoughts and feelings about these communities that he creates is, how important they are for our own personal growth. And that was very clear to me in witnessing this group of people who have known each other for so long, because they're all fucking quirky and they're all eccentric and they all have their, 
faults, but it's like everyone knows each other. And at the bottom, at the, the bottom line is that everyone just supports and loves each other. And, you know, of course, that also means calling people on their shit, but it's like, you're, a, you're this type of weirdo, you know, and you're welcome here. And, um, we're all in this together. And, uh, so I've been thinking about that more. We've had a couple people visit us here in this, in our house in Colorado. And, um, you know, there are certain people, especially those who you trust and especially those who are in our case, many of them living in a van isolated themselves. But it's like, these are people that are worth it to me. I'm not going to like lick their mouths, but I'm going to invite them into my home and share, you know, food with them on different plates. Um, we're not going to be, I'm not going to, you know, we can be safe and responsible, but also calm. And I feel deeply for those who are, who are in circumstances in which they really can't fucking relax and calm down. And I think that was really clear talking to my mom. My dad also happens to be in New York City. And like when you're in that type of context, I get that it's really hard not to get stuck in these like panic and stress loops. But there's also always creative ways to I think solve most problems, you know, even with my mom, it was like, I'd be like, well, what about this? And she's like, well, but I don't think it's possible because of X, Y, Z. It's like, well, let's try this other thing. Like, how can we think constructively and creatively? Okay. Maybe most people are out at their country homes in wherever, um, outside of New York city. But what if maybe one person isn't, what if one person has like a beautiful home out in the country that you could rent, like look, post on Facebook, what's, what's the worst that could happen? You don't find anyone. Um, I just think all of us should be thinking about the ways that we're going to maintain some level of sanity during all of this, because I don't think it's going away. Um, I think it will evolve and maybe change both in our feelings about it, but also in the restrictions and just the extent of the virus spreading. Um, I was listening to a podcast uh, with Noah Feldman the other day with a Harvard epidemiologist who was saying that we should basically expect there to be a presence of coronavirus. I think she said through 2022. And even she was the one that said, like, we don't have to be isolated. We just have to find a tribe. We just have to be isolated and insular in a group. You know, that group shouldn't be 50 people. But who are those six, seven, eight people in your life? And maybe if you're not near them, maybe you can get closer to them. Um, or find people who are close to you. But I think that might be a helpful framework right now for thinking about how we move forward, because I don't think solitude and isolation is super healthy for an extended period of time. I definitely had one of those in my own personal life for like seven months. <laughs> that was enough. And even then I had a two people that I saw, my therapist and one friend. Um, and without that, I probably would have lost my mind. So I think it's vital for us to, we don't need to trust everyone. We don't need to trust the world, but how can we trust just a couple people? You know, it's going to be imperative that we lean on each other and not just via Zoom in order to process all of this. 
my conversation today that you're going to hear is with Mark Epstein. And we talk a lot. He wrote a book called The Trauma of Everyday Life, which drew me in right away because uh, I just felt like I related to that so much. That trauma and pain and sorrow are constant themes and should be. Um, they're painful, but the greatest teachers and um, extremely helpful in growing and learning about oneself and the world that we live in. And this is a traumatic time. Every day is traumatic. Um, you know, not just what's going on collectively, but add on our individual traumas in this time, how we're affected by the collective thing. And there's even more of that. And uh, we shouldn't be expected to do it on, to do this on our own. And quote unquote, isolation can mean a few different things. And we can be mature and adult and figure out how do I survive this? And I don't think it's going to be by ourselves, all alone, in a room, in an apartment, etc. You know, maybe this is the time to like get into camping. <laughs> don't go to national parks, but there's a shit ton of forest service land out there that no one's in right now. And get a tent and go spend some time outdoors and maybe meet people and sit six feet away from them and talk. Um, but just like, let's, let's get ourselves out of what feels unsustainable. Um, and the last thing I want to mention, which I've definitely talked about on this podcast a bunch. So sorry if I'm beating a dead horse, that's a terrible phrase. It's awful. I wish I hadn't said it, but I did. Um, I'm sorry for being redundant. I should have said that. Uh, but there's this thing that, that comes back to me all the time and it's about intuition and about, um, the sort of co-creation that I feel like is going on where we, one, have to sit back and sort of allow things to come to us when we're ready for them, but we also have to take initiative and we have to take steps toward getting what we want. And I, I sort of used to describe it as like, I feel like I'm, and, and when I say used to describe it, I mean in the past few years because I had no idea um, how to do I think I knew how to reach out and grab things. I think that was a form of control. I knew how to get ahead of things and get what I want. But I definitely didn't understand the part about just like sitting back and waiting for things to come. Um, and I think the the latter is can be also dangerous because if you just sit back and wait for things to come, like nothing happens. Things don't magically appear in our lives. So So where is this sort of co-creative space where we're taking a couple steps forward, but we're not leaping too far? Um, and I used to, I described it as like, I feel like I'm floating out in space in a particular orbit and I'm moving. That's the intuitive sort of synchronistic magic place, the movement that occurs just because I'm on the orbit. But then there are all these things flying past me, um, things that I want to do in my life, people that I want to meet, relationships that I want to be in, friends I want to bring into my orbit onto my orbit with me. Um, and I started to realize that like everything I need or want will pass me by at some point. And all I need to do is stay on my orbit, but reach my hand out and grab whatever that thing is, because it's right next to me and I can see it. Now, if I exited off the orbit and I was just like flailing through space, trying to grab all this shit, 
I would lose track of where I was going. I would lose track of the overall journey and the path. But also if I just stayed on the orbit and I saw these things pass me by, but I didn't reach out and grab them, I'd also be failing. I would just be staying where I was without bringing anything into my world. And I think about it all the time because I just, I feel like it's the undercurrent of everything that I do and everything that I think about, you know, just in the way that like someone asked me, a friend that's visiting, you know, how do you, how much do you write down or outline as far as your intros go? And the answer was basically nothing. I mean, I have, I put down a couple bullet points, but all of those bullet points even all come to me sort of intuitively, like this whole community and tribe thing that I was talking about. Like these were just things that were happening in my life in a sort of synchronistic, concurrent way that in my mind began to form a narrative that then I decided I wanted to share. Um, but it's a beautiful thing to get quiet enough and intuitive enough to see how these things just enter in. And they don't enter in if you're doing that flailing, like, what am I going to say in this podcast episode? Like, what am I going to talk about? What am I, what am I trying to say? Like, how can I, how can I do this? And how can I do that? Um, it's too much noise. It's too much movement. And, uh, a little example of this, um, happened just, I guess, last night and this morning. Um, you know, I always have this thing about when I'm going to release my podcast episodes and, uh, I try my best to do it weekly, but it sometimes just really doesn't happen. And I never want to force something because if the whole point of this project is to be this sort of like intuitive channeled creative thing for me to share with others, forcing it or pushing it isn't going to work. And it's not only not going to work for you guys, it's going to start to feel like crap for me and not be motivating. So I always sort of like struggle because obviously if I just was lazy, I wouldn't record anything. You know, sometimes I just want to sit around and do nothing, but I have to tell myself like, no, this is the time to sit down and say what you want to say. Um, so I was having that with this episode. I wanted to post this episode Monday and uh, we've had visitors and we took this trip and it's just been kind of crazy. I was going to do it yesterday, but GarageBand wasn't working. So I had to download it, but the internet here is super slow. So it took a million years. And I was the one, the one piece of the podcast that I hadn't yet figured out was the song that I wanted to play you into my conversation with. And I had a couple of ideas, but they all felt kind of meh. And then I was on Instagram last night and, um, I saw one of my favorite dancers, uh, Emma Portner. If you don't know who she is, you should follow her. I can't quite put my finger on or describe what it is about her that just inspires the fuck out of me, but she's one of the most unique dancers ever, I think. And her story is extremely complex and deep and traumatic. And I think you see that in the way that she moves her body. And it's very clear. Uh, she used to not really talk about uh, anything that she went through. But even before then, it was very clear to see that like movement was her therapy, how she was expressing and working through all of this in her life. Um, anyway, she posts little improvisational videos on um, Instagram. And, uh, she posted one last night and there was a song in it. And I was like, Oh, that's an amazing song. What is that song? 
so I just sort of put a pin in the post. I actually shared it on my Instagram stories. And then this morning, I decided to try and find the song. It was by Peter Broderick. And all I had heard of it was a little snippet of it in her little video. Um, but I took my daily bath today, which seriously, best habit ever. We're leaving and taking off in the van again. And I'm going to really miss these morning baths. I'm going to have to find another like sort of warm, comforting, calming, meditative thing to do every morning for sure. Anyway, I listened to the whole song and it was amazing. And, um, the song was called eyes closed and traveling. And I just thought, fuck, like here I was giving myself a little bit of shit because I hadn't posted the podcast when I thought it would, but then reminding myself that I always want to follow that principle of doing things intuitively and just reaching out and grabbing things from my orbit when I saw them. And had I posted this podcast yesterday, I would have missed that song and it wouldn't have been able to assist me in this whole intro or even just to remind me personally that that strategy always, always works. Um, and I think, you know, this really should apply to all aspects of life. You know, the things that the world, the universe, whatever, wants us to think about are are happening. The ways in which we grow, respond to the experiences and the conversations that we have, it's all interconnected. And um, giving ourselves enough like grace and silence to pick up on those things and then not just to pick up on them, but be grateful for them and to utilize them in whatever aspect of our lives, whether we're trying to solve a personal problem, whether we're trying to create something to put out in the world, it's all there when we need it to be there. It probably happens a lot slower and a lot more subtly than you think it will, but it totally happens. And um, the more you get used to sort of bringing that stuff in while simultaneously, you know, reaching out to get it, the more you have trust in that process. So, all right, I'm going to stop talking. I am about to record an episode with Aaron for Horror Rapport, which if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend doing so. It's a conversation, uh, podcast, rather a series of conversations that I have with my best friend, Aaron, where we talk about sex in a myriad of different ways, uh, and touch on a bunch of different topics. Today, we are recording episode 10 and we're actually going to do like a whole, um, horror revisited episode. So talk again about what we mean when we define ourselves as horror or talk about, you know, what that means to us or what the word means in general. Oh, we're going to unpack that a bit uh, and talk about a lot of things. So if you haven't listened to the show, um, episode 10 might be a great place to join in. So you get a little more insight about who we are and why we think we're whores. Um, so I got to wrap this up because I do got to do that in 12 minutes. Um, but if you would like to support this show, uh, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Um, at different levels, you can support the show and get access to different perks. Um, mostly though, what you're doing is helping me to keep this project afloat. It is the only source of income that I have at the moment. Um, so that money just goes to supporting the time and effort and, uh, yeah, money that it takes to put the show on. 
um, but also there are some perks. So I share different playlists. Um, there is a official uh, book list. So everyone that comes on the show, if you're a long-term listener, you know that I always ask everyone what book they recommend at the end of the podcast. So there's a big document with all of those uh, books linked out for you. Um, I also have a really cool WhatsApp chat for those who donate 10 bucks a month or more. Um, I'm going to cap it at 25 people and I believe we're at 19 right now. So there are only six spots left. Uh, so I very much recommend, um, if you want to be a part of that group to become a patron at that level soon. Um, but it's really cool. We have a really active conversation going on in there where we're talking about the podcast or, um, people are recommending different, uh, people for me to have on the show or just different things they read or what projects they're doing in their own lives and things they're thinking about. And, um, I've been really inspired by it. So if you're feeling especially lonely and starving for community, um, joining into the millennials guide, WhatsApp group chat is a great, at least temporary solution. Um, so again, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Uh, there's lots of other stuff that I offer on there as well. T-shirts, etc. I may start a book club soon. So uh, more info on that to come. We'll see. But that is sort of in the works. Um, if you don't have any extra money to spare, I totally understand. It is a fucked up time and we're all broke. So um, if you have a minute, though, of free time and you want to support uh, the podcast, you can go to the iTunes store, hit subscribe, leave some stars and a review. Um, that helps the podcast show up more in search results and also just makes it look more legitimate to other people that are considering whether or not they should listen to it. It's one of billions of podcasts now, probably. Um, so the more people that leave reviews, the more people seem like, yeah, okay, maybe this is worth listening to. Um, it also helps when I'm pitching the podcast to guests that I want to have on, uh, the bigger the guest, the more inclined they are to do podcasts that reach more people and that are more well-reviewed. So in the end, reviewing the podcast all just helps you because I can bring you more cool conversations. Um, so that's it. So I am going to play you in to this, uh, this conversation with Mark with eyes closed and traveling by Peter Broderick. Enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other end.
All right, so I am here with Mark Epstein. Epstein? Epstein? I always, the Steens I, and the Steins are always Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I say Epstein. I say Epstein. Epstein. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Um, I just had Charles Eisenstein on the podcast, so it's like my brain is just going in every which direction with that stuff. Um, so I interestingly came across your work because of a previous podcast guest. I ask everyone at the end of the show uh, to recommend one book and someone had recommended The Trauma of Everyday Life. And just by the title, I was like, I feel like that's my my thing. Um, so I checked it out and it definitely was and I resonated it, uh, with it quite a bit. Um, so I would definitely love to talk about that. But I would like to sort of start, actually, if you could talk about for you, this like intersection of Buddhism and psychology. Uh, I've talked a lot on the podcast with my own sort of journey through um, psychotherapy and how I actually thought some level of spirituality assisted in it, although it was a little like taboo and unconventional. So I know you avoided merging the two for quite some time. So sort of talking about where you made the decision to sort of conjoin them and whether you found that there are inherent like parallels and similarities. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I avoided uh, overtly uh, uh, merging them, but I think all of my all of my work from the beginning has been about, in some way, trying to integrate them. Because the sort of strange thing about my uh, background was that I I got totally into the Buddhist thing. Uh, before I knew very much about Western psychology at all, and certainly before I had decided to become a, a, a psychotherapist or to go to medical school and become a psychiatrist. Um, so the, the Buddhist, um, Buddhist psychology, Buddhist meditation, and so on, uh, I spent about seven years doing almost nothing but that, um, at least as much as I could do during, you know, while living a life uh, during that time. Um, so that was really in me to start with. And then when I went into the Western training as a Western therapist and whatnot, uh, I was always looking at what I was learning through a Buddhist lens. So I was always interested in the commonalities uh, and in how they could work together. Uh, and I've tried over the years to, you know, um, uh, without differentiating so much one from the other, but to make use of whatever had helped me in both traditions in my own work as a therapist. And mm -hmm. my writing has always been about, uh, you know, how did, how could these things work together? And I've gotten more explicit about it uh, over the years as I've gotten more confident in my own, in my own method, you know, in my own being. And if you could sort of outline, I'm sure there are a number of them, but like the ways in which they've assisted one another or the ways in which they're maybe almost inherently the same or similar? Sure. Um, well, Freud, Freud had this famous uh, uh, comment that the best he could do for anybody was to take them from a state of neurotic misery and return them to one of common unhappiness. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha sort of took common unhappiness as his starting place, um, which I always found comforting because uh, I, I was kind of reaching for something more. Um, they both traditions, you know, the Freudian psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, psychotherapeutic one, and the Buddhist mindfulness one, both are looking at the mind, the mind as sort of the central 
um, foe or ally that can actually be shaped uh, by um, uh, introspection. You know, in the uh, uh, the Western way, it's through looking at oneself and uh, going back to early experience and trying to find the formative elements that make us uh, who we have become. And in the Buddha, from the Buddhist side, it's more about training this inherent capacity that we have as human beings to be able to. Um, look at our minds even while we're thinking, you know. Uh, so it's to train this self-reflective capacity to kind of bring it, uh, bring it out, to heighten its effect, rather than um, uh, analyzing the, the uh, overt causes personality-wise for who we are. There's a lot less talk about um, uh, defenses about early experience about uh, uh, the role of of our early relationships uh, on in the Buddhist uh, uh, way of looking at things which which can be a it can be to its own detriment so i 've tried to bring those two you know the analysis but also the belief in some kind of original uh, um, purity, I could almost say, to the mind that can be uh, can be brought out through um, meditative uh, meditative effort. Yeah, I I do. I feel sometimes caught between the sort of dueling pools of thought around like the analytical, intellectual. I want like the narrative, finding the story part piece, yeah. <laughs> and the like. We don't necessarily need the story. We just need to feel whatever it is in our bodies, our emotions, our nervous system. Um, so I'm curious how you work with those yeah. two things. Yeah, I, I, uh, the story is necessary. I think the story is really helpful. Uh, word, words and thoughts and narratives and so on. Uh, um, are part of uh, uh, part of who we are and how we see the world, how we understand ourselves. So I, I'm uh, I'm respectful of the story, but um, uh, discovering the whatever the truths might be about the story don't necessarily give the freedom that we are looking for. And that I think psychoanalysis in its early days, you know, when it was like the thing in the in the 40s and 50s, it, it kind of promised more than it could deliver that, you know, that if you could if you could uncover the story, you would somehow be free of it. But I think there's another step that the mindfulness that the Buddhist, that the spiritual uh, uh, way of thinking is reaching for, which is actually to have a sense of freedom from who you've always felt yourself to be, uh, or who you've thought you are, uh, and to return in a way to some, um, uh, more basic, uh, um, sense of, uh, maybe who you've always been is how I'm thinking about it now. Right. Yeah, I was at some point in your book, I was like struck between the two concepts of discipline versus control. Um, yeah. And I sort of, oh, like, that's good. you know, um, I'm wondering how you see the difference between those. Um, I think it sort of partially was uh, related to that previous question around sort of like just being in something versus trying to understand and organize. Um, but I'm curious if you could mm -hmm. expand upon those, because I feel like 
in Buddhism, um, or in, in multiple aspects of life, this sort of like idea of discipline makes sense, but can maybe often move into <laughs> control, which might be damaging or counterproductive. Yeah, no, I think it is damaging yeah. and counterproductive, and that it's a very tricky thing. Um, a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us have this sort of perfectionistic striving thing where we want to be perfect or we're trying to trying to live up to somebody's ideal of who we're supposed to be, our own or, or our parents or somebody. So um, the mental disciplines or even like in yoga, the physical disciplines, um, uh, you could see it in academia too, just the, the intellectual disciplines. Um, people fasten on to sometimes the, uh, the control aspect, the discipline aspect a little too tightly, and they make that the be-all and end-all of, uh, of what it's about. But really, I think, at least in meditation, the discipline is sort of an introductory thing to get you into it. Like, oh, it really is possible to sit there and every time the mind wanders, bring it back deliberately, you know, not punitively, but deliberately to the sensations in the body or the sensation of the breath or the sensation of the lips touching each other or the body sitting on the chair, you know, and um, that there's something uh, helpful about learning to discipline the mind that it gives a sense of um, uh, peacefulness uh, or a sense of spaciousness might be a better word, uh, that, that uh, you don't have to be driven by your thoughts, you know, that your thoughts can come and go, and you, whoever you are that's watching them, can actually be regulating your experience a little bit more. That's all super... Uh, you know, almost revelatory, you, you know, that we have that kind of control or can. Um, but what happens in meditation is that after a certain point where what we call the, the mindfulness, which is, you know, the ability to be with whatever's happening non-judgmentally, moment to moment, more or less, when mindfulness gets more established, then the meditator has to learn how to relax within it how to kind of get out of the way. Uh, they call that taking the backward step, you know, so you're like setting, settling back into yourself. And the, the uh, actual Buddhist scriptures have words like the meditator sits cross-legged on his or her cushion and sets their mindfulness before them. You know, so you move back and the mindfulness comes more to the foreground. And then they they talk about uh, uh, in the original literature, which was in a farming uh, community, farming and uh, livestock uh, community. They talk about at the beginning, you're like the shepherd who has to corral the sheep. You know, every time they wander too far, you have bring them back with the stick. But then after a while, when the mindfulness is established... All you have to do is like sit back and lean against a post with like one eye open, and because uh, because the sheep have learned to stay within the pasture, um, so that becomes much more the experience, and that's kind of a huge relief that it's not all about control anymore, and not about striving, but about uh, learning how to let things reveal themselves to you if you have just one eye open. 
that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, I love in your books, you sort of talk about like, you talk about these concepts and, and you're sort of honest about like some of these things feel so out of reach or conceptually they make total sense, but inter experientially it's like, yeah, good luck. Um, and I, I feel like I, I read some book relatively recently. I forget who wrote it. It was called letting go, but the sort of that, like the dual process. Terrible. Title. Yeah. Um, it was, it was an okay, it was an okay book, but I, I agree. It, sure. was, it was a really bad title. Um, but it, it's so hard to find that. And I talk so much about like duality and paradox on my podcast because I think, and nuance, because I feel like that's where like the juice of pretty much everything is. But I find it so hard within this context, that middle ground between sort of digesting, feeling, accepting, understanding, and then not being controlled by it and letting it go. It's like I sort of both of those on either side, I understand, but the middle ground of like, what does it feel like to really embody something like that? I think we, we, I would love to hear your thoughts, but I would assume that a lot of what we think is feeling or metabolizing is actually not really acceptance. It's more like an, an intellectual pursuit, a cerebral sort of exercise, like, yeah, 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 no, I get it. Um, but all we're doing is sort of like understanding it in some external way and then projecting it outward. And I feel like maybe in your book, the trauma of everyday life, it was sort of talking a bit about that, about that like middle ground. Um, if that makes sense at all. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you, you're reminding me when you're talking, you're reminding me of, um, one of my, uh, I would say most profound experiences on a meditation mm-hmm. retreat. I've done a lot of these retreats. You know, we go for a week or two to uh, a, a Buddhist center. I usually go to a place in um, central Massachusetts called the Insight Meditation Society. And uh, for the time period that you're there, you're trying to cultivate this um, uh, quality of mindfulness where there's sitting meditation and walking meditation and eating meditation. And the idea is... Um, uh, whether you're in formal meditation or not, you're trying to be as much in the present moment as possible, you know, with that observing mind, keeping it going. Um, and the control thing and the perfectionistic thing and the ego thing of like, oh, I'm really doing this right. Uh, uh, you, people tend to fall into that, myself included. So I was on uh, one of those retreats a number of years ago now. And, um, you know, fell over the, usually the first three days are the hardest, but then after that, something clicks in and, you know, feeling of lightness or openness, spaciousness starts to permeate. And it's very often very pleasant, or it was for me at this time. And, uh, I was sort of like walking a little bit off the ground, you know, feeling very sure of myself and the retreat ended, uh, early in the morning and I went down to the parking lot to get my car to leave and there was a snow storm had started. It was winter. Um, and the, the car was all covered with snow, but I was feeling very, you know, like in it. Uh, and, uh, I opened the car door and got the brush to, uh, you know, sweep all the snow off the car turned on the wipers and the lights and got the motor going because it hadn't been uh, hadn't been on for the past week and uh, 
closed the door uh, to get the snow off and mistakenly locked the door. Uh, so I was locked out. It was before a keyless car. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so there I was locked out of my car. It was like six o'clock in the morning uh, with the wipers on and the lights on and, and uh, coming off this, this retreat. Uh, and I had to, I was like, oh my God, I've just, you know, thought I was so mindful and I just like locked myself out of my car, which I took as a metaphor for something <laughs> that I had to figure out later. What is, what is this? What's the teaching here? You know, locked out of myself. And I had to trudge up to the center and wake up the, uh, uh, the grounds people and, uh, and I was, you know, I'm sure this happens all the time. You know, people lock themselves. You must have like one of those instruments to, they were like, no, this has never happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're the only one. <laughs> um, so I had to call AAA and wait three hours, you know, and they came, but, um, my, my, what I saw from all that, once I finally got going and was driving home was that, I wasn't berating myself. I wasn't, you know, little bits of, oh, I could feel ashamed or I could feel like an idiot. Uh, but really, I could just be like driving home and it was fine, you know. And so I still had that like, okay, just on to the next thing, you know, like I don't have to be traumatized by my own failure, but I could, uh, you know, the sense of humility which is, I think, one of the fruits of the practice, uh, because whether it's a psychotherapy practice or a meditation practice or the combination, you see yourself more and more clearly, you know, less and less defensive, which doesn't make you perfect at all. It just makes you more you. Um, but in being more you, I think that there's some kind of quality of vulnerability or humility or acceptance uh, that translates into um, uh, being more real in one's relationships and less, um, maybe more forgiving of other people. And, you know, we could take it a number of places, but. Right. Yeah. I've started to notice this sort of process, at least in myself, where I feel like I went from total lack of awareness on any front, really. So there was a lot going on internally, but I was pretty unaware to projecting that that pain or that anger or that fear outward at something external like this is causing me to feel like this and then i feel like the next phase after that was okay i recognize that a lot of this is coming from me it's coming internally but then like the realizing the reason i was projecting it in the first place was because that was sort of too painful and i you know the the recognition of the internal trauma wounds, um, like there was a lot of shame around that, which I think we try to get to that next phase of like releasing it and letting go and it's fine. Um, but we don't totally, uh, you know, know how to live in that process of really feeling that stuff in our bodies. Um, which again, I feel like, I mean, and maybe the, I'd love to hear you talk and expand upon like your definition of trauma and what the, this whole trauma of everyday life concept, like what does that mean? Because obviously I think our culture doesn't either doesn't, we don't understand what trauma is necessarily, or we don't want to accept that has anything to do with us. Um, but I sort of like you see it in a much more broad nuanced way. Um, yeah. 
Well, there's there's different kinds of trauma, obviously. Um, the the definition of trauma that that um, that I came to when writing that book that you liked, um, I was certainly no expert in trauma. And, uh, and, uh, when I set out to write that book, I originally wanted to write like a, uh, psychobiography of the Buddha, um, like an Eric Erickson kind of book about uh, the Buddha's childhood. Cause the, um, the Buddha's mother died when he was a week old. Um, and he was raised by his father and, and his aunt who his father married, um, and no one had ever made anything of that. Like, why is that in the story? And uh, I thought it was sitting and waiting for a psychiatrist to come along and do something with. So, uh, so I decided that was me. Um, so that's what got me into trauma. But then, I, then I started reading. You know, uh, and I had certainly had my share of patients with trauma that we could talk about too, if you want. Um, but the best definition of trauma was something like. Uh, a person is faced with a situation that um, uh, uh, is frightening to the degree of uh, of um, uh, uh, portending death or serious injury or you know something something on that level, and that the uh, emotional reaction to whatever it is that's happening is so. Uh, overwhelming, so scary that the ego, which is all about preserving oneself so that one can keep going, the ego has to keep those uh, very frightening emotions at least partially at bay in order to keep going so that the uh, the fear or the um, uh, panic or the you know whatever comes in the wake of those kinds of feelings uh, have to be some somewhat at least shut away, closed off, defended against, so that a person can survive. But the um, those troubling emotional reactions really have nowhere to go. You know, some people think they get buried in the body, and some people think they get buried in memory or in the mind or some combination. But they have nowhere to go. They, they, they lurk in the darkness, kind of, and uh, tend to come out later in life in dreams or in, uh, uh, when smells come that uh, remind you of the original incident or someone talks to you in the wrong way or you hear a siren, whatever it happens to be. Uh, so that's the idea of post-traumatic stress. Um, so, and then in the um, psychoanalytic literature, they made a big differentiation between uh, what they call big T or capital T trauma, which is like when you're, um, uh, you know, 9-11 or you're in a war or, or you're in a car accident or a terrorist bombing or something, you know, something horrible, cancer. Um, a big T trauma, like an acute event that sets off what we think of as, a, you know, um, a traumatic uh, reaction. And then a little t trauma, uh, which they also talk about as developmental trauma, which would which would be the kinds of things that happen when you're little, uh, say when you're a one year old uh, infant crying for your mother, but she's gotten drunk and fallen asleep, or uh, just isn't you know for whatever reason can't be there to hear your cries. Uh, after a certain point of crying. 
the uh, uh, hypothetically a child in that situation gives up uh, you know the the um, uh, the the emotions that are there even in a young baby uh, become so intense that even the baby has to shut them away and and sort of go into lockdown um, and so th- that kind of experience gets internalized as uh, a kind of absence where there should have been a presence you know parents who um, who weren't there adequately or who alternatively were there too much, you know, messing with you too much and insisting that you uh, have an enema when you haven't moved your bowels or (laughs) hovering around the toilet train and, Mm -hmm. you you know, uh, what's wrong with you? You you haven't pooped yet or uh, forcing the the breast or the bottle on you because they're worried that uh, you're not eating enough or, you know, that those developmental traumas can be either from, uh, too intrusive a kind of parenting or too abandoning a kind of parenting. So all that was being filtered through, you know, as I'm trying to make sense of trauma, that idea of a, the, the little t developmental uh, traumas versus the big T uh, acute uh, horrible incident traumas. Um, but from the Buddhist perspective, and I think some of this was coming out of the Buddha's early experience of losing his mother. Uh, from the Buddhist perspective, um, if we're not suffering from post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, we're suffering from pre-traumatic stress disorder because, uh, you know, old age, illness, loss, separation from the loved, or uh, being um, uh, too, too tight with uh, people who you don't love, you know, having to be quarantined with someone who you don't love. Um, uh, all of that is traumatic and, and, uh, there's always going to be some of that for all of us, you know, no, no one gets out alive from, uh, having a human birth, you, you know, uh, and, uh, all the people who we love, um, either they're going to see us die or we're going to see them die, you know, unless we go together in an instant, which you could imagine yeah, that's traumatic exactly. too. So... Uh, so that was the Buddha. The Buddha's big declaration was that the, that even in a wonderful life, you know, uh, that there's always this hint of unsatisfactoriness because um, first and foremost, none of us are spared from uh, impermanence, change, loss. Um, it's in, you know one form or another. It's always going to happen. And so this uh, the pandemic that's happening now. Um, you know, is certainly a, an illustration of that, you know, in a moment, in a, in a week, in a month, whatever it was, you know, out of the blue, our, uh, the lives we're all living are completely upended. Um, and uh, stuff like that happens. It's not only the pandemic stuff like it's just like that's happening to the whole world all at once. So it's it's incredible. But um, uh, individual elements of that are happening to people, you know, uh, every moment, every moment of the day, someone somewhere is being hit by something they didn't expect uh, that is causing those uh, traumatic uh, uh, feelings to erupt. So the, the, the Buddha's whole prescription he actually saw himself as a doctor or as a physician and that this was what he was treating. So his whole prescription is, oh, there's something you can do to discipline your mind that will help to prepare you to face these kinds of traumas um, uh, with more, more, more resilience. 
Uh, and he even phrased his, when, when he gave that first statement of, you know, there's this hint of unsatisfactoriness that, we're, that we all have to face in life. Um, the word he used was, was dukkha, which is a famous uh, Sanskrit uh, word that's kind of filtered into uh, English now, like karma. Uh, uh, but dukkha is usually translated as suffering. But it, it really means something different than that. If you take the word apart, it means hard to face, cause face. So there's sukha in life, which is sweetness, you know, happiness, something that's sweet to face. And there's dukkha, which is something that's difficult to face or hard to face. And that's what uh, they didn't have a word for trauma. 2,500, 2,600 years ago in the Buddhist time. But he made up this word, or he, he adapted this word, dukkha, to, uh, I think, um, imply what we think of as trauma, that there's this traumatic undercurrent to life uh, that we're all, in one, one form or another, uh, trying to protect ourselves from. But it's impossible to protect yourself from it completely. So it's better to face it. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about what's going on right now. But I was wanted to go back as well because I feel like, you know, that thing I was talking about getting stuck in, um, like I almost feel like uh, for me personally, but also I think for a lot of people I talk to, once there's this sort of um, ability to develop awareness about what's going on and really you know, be able to feel and think and analyze, um, current traumas like being locked out of your car feel a lot easier to manage versus much smaller incidents where maybe the incident itself isn't actually traumatic, but it's triggering a previous like small T childhood. Um, and those are the ones where I feel like the shame cycle gets really intense because it's like you, you're so conscious and so aware that like, this isn't worth the feeling <laughs> that I'm feeling, but yet I'm still feeling it. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what you, uh, what your thoughts are on that, or I know, you know, as a therapist, you don't really advise your, your clients, but, um, you know, <clears throat> Oh, I give, oh, I give tons of advice <laughs> to my clients, despite <laughs> pretending that I don't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what, um, I'd love to hear what your advice is for that. Uh, yeah, I can talk about that from a, in mm -hmm. a couple of different ways. Um, uh, the first way I think I, I've been really helped personally by uh, an idea, a Buddhist uh, psychological uh, uh, notion, concept, uh, called um, injured innocence that I first heard about when I was teaching a, like a workshop with Professor Robert Thurman, who's a professor of uh, uh, Buddhist studies at Columbia, or was until recently. I think he's, uh, I think he's now retired finally. Uh, but we've taught together a lot over the years. And um, he brought this idea up once a long time ago that comes out of Tibetan Buddhism, um, which, which is that um, in, order to, in order to actually understand or realize what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about egolessness or selflessness, which is one of the kind of ideals of Buddhist meditation, you know, to realize egolessness, to realize selflessness, that to... Uh, to approximate any kind of understanding of that, you first have to find within yourself the feeling of yourself, you know, or of self 
as you actually experience it, you know, like not in an abstract way, like who am I, but in a, in a visceral way, in a literal way, almost in the body, the way you were talking before, um, you, you know, uh, uh, and uh, from the Buddhist perspective, the best way, the best time to actually find that feeling, because it turns out to be hard to find if you turn your mind back on yourself, like, where am I? It's like there's sort of like an invisible space in there, and, it's, and you can't actually put your finger on it. It's harder than it sounds. But when, when somebody who uh, you actually care about, or somebody who you love, or someone whose opinion matters to you, uh, insults you, uh, or hurts your feelings, you know, right away in that, in almost before thought, but as a feeling, uh, there comes a, a sense of um, uh, almost like violent. Uh, how could how could he or she? How could they think that of me? How could they talk to me that way? How could they do that to me? And I think that's what you were implying before, like a little thing that happens in the. In the uh, in the everyday, in the ordinary, it, it creates a response that seems so big and so you know, like that's how a lot of relationships get into trouble because someone who you purportedly love, you know, like uh, makes some demand of you or accuses you of doing something that you didn't do. That's the classic Buddhist thing when they accuse you of something that you really you know you're innocent. You know, but this person whose opinion matters is like telling you that you meant to do this, you know, hurtful thing. And so this the feeling of self rises up inside. Now, from a Western psychodynamic point of view, uh, when you're uh, hurt like that, it often resonates back to early childhood to some of those little t developmental trauma places that we were talking about, you know, when you're trying to be a good boy uh, or a good girl, you know, and you fail or your your parents are uh, like beating you or, or just are upset uh, for reasons, you know, you didn't do anything in particular, but you feel like you did. Uh, you know, I must have done something for them to be upset. Sometimes it's actually something that you did do or didn't do. Sometimes they're just upset and you as a child are blaming yourself. In, uh, in At times when you're actually, there's sexual abuse or physical abuse, there can be a lot of shame because um, people, the kids who are abused like that are confused and uh, they don't know what's going on and, and they assume they did something wrong. Anyway, there's all kinds of ways to talk about it. But... Um, so from a, a Western psychodynamic place, those kinds of hurt feelings can go all the way back. And then this, that feeling that rises up like needs to resolve not just the immediate threat, but the original one. You know, like I'm not going to let anybody who uh, talk to me like that ever. You know, I have a sense of pride um, coupled with shame. But uh, from the Buddhist point of view, uh, uh, those moments when you feel that sense of righteous indignation are actually opportunities to find the self that the Buddha claims doesn't really ex- exist. Um, so you can zero in on that feeling of, you know, me, 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 how could they do that to me? And that's a real opportunity to mindfully examine who is this me that I take so seriously, you know? So the the point is not to 
train oneself to suffer more abuse, you, you know, uh, but it's to use the little insults that are inevitable, you know, that come up in every kind of relationship. You can use those to actually free yourself a little bit from the identity, you know, even the old identity of someone who was wronged, of someone who was, who didn't have a good enough childhood, you, you know, um, and this is, again, where I think the Buddhist uh, vision of things and the psychodynamic one can work together a little bit, because um, even, even people who grew up in loving families with devoted parents, you know, good schools, enough food and love and books and attention, even those people... Um, come out of their childhood, almost everybody, with some kind of scar, some kind of wound, some kind of feeling of insecurity, some kind of defensive organization around themselves that makes themselves like a little too, too rigid or too, too something. You know, no one really gets out of childhood totally intact. And uh, there can be a tendency in our culture to look backwards and blame one's parents, one's mother, one's environment, or oneself for what went wrong, and to think that the, uh, the only remedy is to uh, either seek forgiveness or um, uh, change the past in some way or make the person who hurt you acknowledge the hurt. Um, that doesn't work. And the, and the Buddhist uh, approach is offering an alternative, an alternative to that because it's saying that we are not only who we think we are. We're not only that hurt child that is now a grown-up that can't handle any kind of challenge to our authority, you know, that, that who we are is much more mysterious than that, you, you know, much more subtle uh, much more nuanced, much more actually invisible, uh, but we can get a feel for it, not just by dwelling more in our bodies or in our breath. Those are just vehicles for accessing this more mysterious quality that, uh, uh, that nevertheless is accessible to us. The, um, I'll stop talking no, in a minute, but I'll just say <laughs> one more thing. The, uh, um, the one of the first Buddhist uh, 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 collection of verses that I ever read. Uh, I was a freshman in college, taking an introduction to world religion class that I had no plans in taking when I got to school. But uh, I met someone who was taking it and followed her there. Um, but there's a collection of Buddhist verse called the Dhammapada, which is um, you know ancient uh, little little poems. And one of them is from is just called mind, and and in that uh, particular verse it says, uh, "Look to your mind, wise man. Look to it well. It is subtle, invisible, and treacherous." And I remember those three adjectives, you know, subtle, invisible, and treacherous, really grabbed my imagination. And I, and I think that it's more in that direction that we can, we don't have to dwell on um, all, the, all the hurts, even all the traumas. You know, they, they do not have to define us, even while we have to take them seriously, the impact that they had on us. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's great. I, I mean, it's such a... 
you know, I was thinking, taking notes before talking to you, like there is such this, a universality, like you said, in this type of early childhood trauma. And yet, I mean, on the one hand, I, I understand why we sort of punish ourselves for it because I don't think there's many collective cultural, um, especially not in Western culture, you know, there's no, like, would we be better able to sort of handle and, and accept this type of pain or grief, or I'm trying not to use the word suffering, uh, if, if collectively we were more accepting of it, you know, so we're here punishing ourselves for feeling the way that we do. And we're trying to fix ourselves, but we're not necessarily looking outward and being like, maybe the environment that I'm in is not holding this for me in the way that it might, it, it should, or it could. <laughs> no, that, that's, um, that's part of where the Western uh, uh, therapeutic approach is really important because um, a lot of times when there is a, that kind of early developmental trauma where the, the uh, attachment relationships, we call them, not attachment in a bad way, but attachment in a good way, where the attachment relationships are fraught, um, you know, not as good as we would hope they could be, the person comes out of that feeling like there's something wrong with them, you know, like, it, like there's a fault in them, you know. And that can lead to a lot of trouble, a lot of shame, a lot of addictive behavior, a lot of bad relationships. So it's therapeutically, it's so helpful to be able to retell the story, to start to look at what really happened there. You know, you were not taken care of properly. You know, you started to develop all of these weird stories that you were telling yourself about what the problem was and that the problem was you, uh, you know. And uh, sometimes maybe there's some things to take responsibility for, but more often than not, the problem was not you. Um, but in telling yourself those stories over the years, you're shutting down a whole big part of your potential. You know, so from you know other directions, we have to find ways of unlocking that potential that are. Uh, familial environments were neglecting, you know, it's still there inside of us. Um, so we can, we can grow outwards from whatever the trauma was once we stop blaming ourselves. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about something that I think in the past was hard for me to understand. And now it's something that I understand, but it's hard for me to explain or verbalize, which is like, you know, when I, I remember being in therapy and sort of at the very beginning stages of, of recognizing what actually went on in my childhood and coming to terms with a lot of different things and making some pretty huge realizations. And I remember my therapist asked me like, so how do you feel now knowing this? Like, how does that make you feel about yourself? Or, and I said something to the extent of, well, if it wouldn't have, if it didn't happen, I wouldn't be who I am. You know, one of those, um, and she was like, okay, well, I, you know, I hear, I hear that there's truth there, but how is that statement potentially eliminating, um, the pain associated with what happened, even if you are who you are now and there's some silver lining, um, this like need to both, you know, find the meaning in something or potential meaning in something, but simultaneously feel the pain associated with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. the complicated nature of, you know, especially like right now, for example, what's happening in the world, 
you know, I, I get pulled between wanting to say like, let's figure out, you know, what this means or what we can do with it or what's happening here. But at the same time, let's not try and avoid the fact that it is scary and it is painful and there is a lot of tragedy. Um, I'm sure you've sort of dealt with that, uh, interaction between those two things quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we ever really eliminate the pain. You, you know, mm-hmm. that's sort of like the that wish, that hope that your therapist was expressing, you know, that understanding is is going to eliminate uh, uh, something. Uh, it doesn't always. It, you know, I think, I think when there's a lot of shame, shame might be one thing that can actually be attenuated, you know. Uh, but like with with grief, um, that's a to me that's a, a fantasy. You know that when uh, when you lose someone you love, or when you've lost a part of your childhood that you that you uh, 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 treasured, you know uh, that the grief of that would ever actually abate. I mean, it changes, but uh, but I think it's part of. It's part of love that the that the sadness goes on, you know, when you lose somebody, um, and the pain that we feel over whatever uh, traumas, whatever troubles, whatever difficulties we had in life. Uh, yes, that shapes us, and yes, that makes us who we are. Uh, but I don't know that that the freedom that's promised, you know, comes from, you don't actually forget about it, mm-hmm. you, you know. It's it's more that you don't uh, completely identify with it anymore. I think it's really around that, uh, that, that there's a shift um, and a, a sense of lightness or, or lightening, um, you, you know, that can... Uh, and also of um, uh, possibility that there's more possibility for you, that you're not just that person that you discovered you were, you know, in all the therapy. Um, right. But, but you're also <laughs> discovering something more in the relationship with the therapist, ideally. You're discovering something more about yourself, you know, that you're actually capable of more than you thought you were. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I think she sort of followed up. You know, it was it was she just wanted me to hold both truths, basically, you know. Yeah, of course. And of course, yeah. like and what might have happened had what happened in your childhood not happened. Like, do you think you wouldn't be right. gifted or, you know, just like getting me to think about all the different sort of facets of of that situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been I was going to talk about it on the intro to a podcast. I was going to another one I was going to record today. Actually, I've I've begun to sort of relate I was feeling some frustration and uh, like anger around this concept of like, we want to get back to normal collectively. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why that was, why I was having those feelings. And then I think eventually I sort of related it to my own like personal dark night of the soul. So drawing these sort of parallels between what's happening now collectively. And, and I remember at the time for myself in my own life that I do remember for a while thinking like, I can't wait to go back to normal. Like this is a painful part of my life. This is a, you know, difficult period. It's traumatic, but eventually I'll come out of this. And the sort of fantasy that I had was that I was going to be the person I was before this, I was going to return. And of course that didn't happen. What happened was that yet the pain didn't go away, but it did 
it transformed and changed into something else that was a part of me. It's never going to go away. Like that experience, I can't erase it or go back. I can't unsee what I saw. Um, and where I came out of it was like, it was, yes, quote unquote, a new normal. It wasn't as terrible as it was in the moment, but it was all that pain was always there. And of course I think it led to a great deal um, it led me to experience sort of love and happiness in a more profound way as well, but it never quite went away. It was just like, okay, my life moving forward is just going to be more complex. Um, so anyway, all that to say, it, I, I feel like maybe my anger and frustration was sort of looking at the world now and people, you know, um, wanting to just move out of this or move past this or move beyond this in a way that I almost feel like is going to make it come at us harder somehow. Um, I think that's really, I think that's very true. Very right. You're making me remember, um, when I was in therapy, um, uh, at one point in my life after ending, ending, uh, um, a relationship and uh, getting, you know, at the beginning of another one. And I was feeling bad about, you know, some of the stuff in the previous relationship and, and, uh, talking to my therapist about, you know, what I, what I had contributed and wanting to, uh, uh, you know, not, not, uh, uh, be like that again, kind of thing. And, uh, he was like, you, you know, you're wanting to get rid of this, uh, but this, uh, this is part of your history, you, you know, which is sort of like what you were saying mm -hmm. and, um, being able to take it on as part of my history. I've, I, that's helped me a lot as a therapist with other people. Um, and the, the other part of that is that, uh, the sort of coping mechanisms that, uh, starting when we're children that we put into play in order to deal with the imperfect situations in which we find ourselves, you know, like in this body, in this family, with the, with these, these siblings, with these parents at this school. Uh, and we all have, we all cope with that and shape ourselves in the, in that coping, but that there's something creative, uh, uh, in that coping you know, even if the result of all that creative adjustment, you know, even if the result is a sort of imperfect version of ourselves, that um, that the cre the creative energy that goes into doing that is something that needs to be acknowledged and, and even praised. Um, so that, uh, as it applies for now, that that um, uh, feeling that I think we all at least came into this uh, pandemic with thinking, when is it going to be over? And we just want to get back to normal. And then as it's uh, going on and on and we, and we're starting to realize maybe there's not going to be going back to normal, but there's going to be something different that what we're all doing now in this kind of retreat uh, part of the, uh, of the virus, you know, where we're many, where everyone is like locked up and alone and having to cope that there's a creative adjustment happening even now in this for each of us and, and a process of discovery for, the, for those of us who are lucky enough not to just be totally suffering and starving and, you know, uh, having to go work in the hospitals and, and that kind of, co I guess even there there's coping that 
that um, there's a creative aspect to it, but that there's, we're all learning during this time. It's, we're not just suffering. Uh, we're learning in the midst of the suffering, and we're going to take that into the next phase. And the next phase, no one knows what that's going to be yet. You know, it's definitely not going to be what it was previously. You know, unless there's like the the greatest vaccine in the world that gets made for everyone on Earth. You know, right? And it works forever. Yeah, it mm-hmm. reminds me of something I wrote that was in all in relation to childhood trauma, but I feel like applies collectively now to something about like, you know you're brilliant because you had to be to survive. So it's like you had to think creatively and use all these gifts in a way that at the time was a survival mechanism, but actually turned out to be kind of beneficial. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's sort of a, I think that's an important element of therapy to, to bring that out for people, Mm -hmm. you you know, to show them that, Oh, they were brilliant in their own way all along, you know, even while they were uh, uh, suffering under the weight of whatever was happening. But I interrupted. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I think, you know, it almost, I have sort of adopted this uh, thing in my life now where, you know, I think it requires quite a bit of knowledge about one's own intuition and and self-trust, but sort of moving toward fear in a way, like moving toward things that might feel tricky or a little scary, um, in order to learn, because if we just sort of stay in a comfort zone and stay safe, we don't necessarily get that level of learning and creativity. And I know I feel guilty about it sometimes, but in terms of what's going on right now, like the lessons I feel like that could potentially be learned around control, first of all, like we're so all out of control right now. And I think, um, either trying to melt into that or running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Um, but also really like, okay, now that I don't have to go to this job now that this thing that was a distraction before isn't an option, like who am I and what do I like and what do I want? It's such it feels, I feel guilty again because I know people are suffering, but it also just undoubtedly feels like an opportunity. Yeah. Well, that's where this is really functioning like a meditation retreat for a lot of people where you're, you're stripped away uh, from all of the distractions, you know, that used to be what you hung your identity on and you're, you're much more on your own. And having to discover really what you're made of, how how you how will you cope creatively with this situation? And and some people are finding aspects of themselves that they didn't know were there. You know, the risk taking thing I think you see in uh, uh, artists of all kinds because they they're the sort of at the forefront of uh, having learned that. If you stay too safe, uh, your work won't be good. You know that you that you have to take risks. You have to get off balance in yourself. You you know, um, not to the place of self destruction, hopefully, um, but uh, to the place of being able to make a new discovery about whatever it is that that you're um, trying to do. Yeah, like vulnerability. Just like being vulnerable enough to like to try and to not know and to fail. I think too is a big part of it to learn that we can fail and, yeah. or, you know, and see the meaning in that even like, that's not what was meant for me and that's okay. <laughs> um, these are all, I feel like yeah. lessons right now. Um, all right. Well, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, 
thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, You're totally welcome. <laughs> I did too. So before we go, um, if you could tell people where to find more about you and your work, and then I ask everyone to recommend um, one book. If you want to do two or three, that's fine. But either something that was yeah. just really instrumental or meaningful for you in your life or has to do with this conversation or anything. Sure. Um, uh, people who want to find out more about my books, um, I do have a website. It's Mark Epstein, MD. Uh, I think it's that anyway, Mark Epstein, MD.com. It must be that, uh, um, there's a Facebook page. That's also Mark Epstein, MD, uh, that, that, uh, has, you know, if I'm, uh, uh giving a talk or, uh, uh, publish something new or whatever, um, th so those are the two major um, places that I post stuff. Um, uh, I have a bunch of books, you know, I think seven altogether. I'm working on the eighth. So they're all different versions of the same thing, but written at different times in my life. So, uh, you know, trying to understand uh, uh, myself uh, and this world. Um, uh, so, and in terms of recommending a book or two or three, um, the first book that comes to mind is by uh, a woman named Maggie Nelson. I bet other people have recommended it, but it's called The Argonauts. Mm. Um, and uh, she's a wonderful writer, great, really great writer, cultural critic. Uh, but she's drawing on all kinds of influences, uh, both from literature and Buddhism and uh, um, uh, the art world, and um, uh, she, she, I really respect her writing. Um, so that would that would be one. Uh, there's an incredible book uh, um, that's uh, simply called Wave that uh, was written by a woman whose her first name is uh, Sonali, and she's from Sri Lanka. Her last name is Dirani Yagala. I could spell it if you want, but it starts with a D, and if you just look up <laughs> Wade. It out. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a memoir of sorts. She was uh, in the 2004 tsunami, so it's big T trauma. She was vacationing with her family. She was a professor in, in, um, uh, in London. Uh, she had a, a, a husband uh, who was uh, born in London and two children with him, and they were all vacationing with her parents uh, in a like in an eco lodge in Sri Lanka when the tsunami came in it swept everybody away, uh, including her and she survived by uh, clinging to a tree branch that she washed up against, and everybody else died. Um, and so it's a real first person account of trauma, but by someone who wasn't destroyed. She was almost destroyed, but she wasn't destroyed by the trauma. Um, so that's another book that um, uh, that I would recommend. And then um, I'll just give you one more. Uh, the, uh, the series of six volumes called My Struggle by uh, Karl Ove uh, Nausgaard. Um, if you haven't dipped into those and uh, you're you're interested in a kind of first-person account of the minutia of ordinary life uh, written by a man who is also a, a husband and father uh, and uh, uh, took on a lot of the domestic responsibilities while also um, uh, being a writer. Um, some, many people can't stand it because it's so, uh, uh, some would say, narcissistic. 
but um, uh, but I didn't find it that way. I found it to be uh, an example of the kind of things that we were talking about, where uh, someone's able to really look at their own experience and um, not be completely identified with it, but turn it into art. So. Um, those, those, those three things would be enough to keep people awesome. for a while. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this was fun, and I will let you know when it's out in the world. Great. It's re- really nice to meet you. Hey, 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 hey. Thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed that show. If you would like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Get access to lots of fun perks like a WhatsApp group chat, t-shirts, playlists, book lists, lots of lists, um, and just help support the show, because even though this is fun and a project that I don't ever want to stop, it definitely takes time and energy and money, and um, I don't want to have ads on the show, at least not anytime soon. I really don't want to have them, so uh, the only way that this podcast can make money is through you guys. So if you have a couple bucks to spare and want to donate something per month, I would really appreciate it. Patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. You can also uh, rate and review the podcast on the iTunes store and hit subscribe. Um, That helps the podcast grow and show up more in search results. And um, yeah, I think that's all I'm going to say today. Thank you all for listening. As always, I've got a lot of exciting podcasts coming up that I'm excited to share with you. As always, I sometimes look back at all the podcasts I've recorded and um, it's awesome. Like sometimes I forget how many cool and amazing people I've had on this show. I think at some point I should share with, I know there's a lot of new listeners all the time. So sort of like share maybe some of my favorite episodes from the past. If so, if you guys want to go back and, uh, listen to some old ones. Um, I can tell you which ones I like the most and maybe give you a little summary. So I'll do that at some point, (laughs) add it to my list of projects. Um, today I'm going to play you out with a, um, perfectly thematic song for this episode, um, called tiny apocalypse by David Byrne, constant tiny apocalypses right now and always. Love you guys. Talk to you next week.
say, well, I don't even know his name Call me in the morning, was a friend of mine Well, the wind's so strong, it's blowing us all around Wind's so strong, nobody settled down Every day, another apocalypse Had a TV, but I don't know how deep it is Please read the print This is part of us And you must take 